We started back in Genesis last week, and I confess I'm already taking a divergent path from that. We've been away from it for about a month for Christmas, but I, uh, I felt like after a couple weeks ago we talked on the church, and uh, because of conversations following that, I, it seemed apparent to me that we needed to, to continue to talk about the church a little bit. So this morning, we're kind of back where we were a couple weeks ago. This morning to talk specifically about some of the things that identify Lion and Lamb. That is, some of the ways in which Lion and Lamb Church is different from other churches or those aspects of our church life that make us unique. A couple things about this. In saying this, actually a few things. Uh, I hope that everything I say is encouraging to you, not that I don't sound critical. I tend to be a critical person, so I hope I don't come across critically, not necessarily talking about our church, but talking about other models. Uh, Also, when we say that these are ways we're unique, we're not saying that our church is somehow uh, in any uh, uh, broad way different from other churches uh, qualitatively. That is, we don't talk about the things that are distinct about us so that we separate ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ. We talked two weeks ago about the Ephesians 4 passage, that there's one body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, etc. So in talking about distinctives, we're not trying to alienate ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ, but related to the context about gifts and callings and the way God's made individuals and the way He's made groups, we tend to have strengths and weaknesses. And so In that sense, what we're talking about this morning are some of the ways that lion and lamb tends to be unique, perhaps in in the way we do some things, or what we do, or also perhaps in the way those are mixed together in our group. So hopefully, at the end of this morning, there will be some clearer sense, perhaps a helpful sense of what we're doing and why. And again, the goal is for us not to be different than others for difference's sake, but it's to recognize the way God has wired us, called us, gifted us, so that we can maximize the things we're good at and minimize our weaknesses. So that's where we're going this morning. We could probably talk about a number of things. I'm going to focus on four this morning. Um, The three first ones are probably the most important as far as the ways we're different from some other... um, local expressions of the body of Christ. In order, we'll look at our corporate meeting on Sunday morning, our leadership model for the church, number two, number three, our outlook on youth ministry, and then number four, our desire for corporate life and work. This is an exhaustive, and by the way, I will mention uh, probably one or two things that may raise questions for you, maybe more than that. If you have questions, holler, email me, call me, talk to me. I'd be glad to visit with you or follow up on anything you'd like to. First, related to corporate life in our Sunday morning meeting, the Sunday meeting is the only time when all the church gathers together. And so it's important. In some ways, it's, it's a defining, it's a key defining element of the church because what we consider important, we do when all of us gather together. So Sunday morning meeting is very important. We're combining at least a few different things or aspects of church life, uh, fellowship, teaching, worship. I'll talk a little bit about the, the second two of that threesome, teaching and worship here. But to put this in context, you know that if you read through your New Testament, you do not find a church meeting that looks like lion and lamb on Sunday morning. 
or any other church in the world today that looks just that way on Sunday morning that doesn't exist. And the reason is this. The meetings that you'll see described in the New Testament could be of a variety of forms. So you'll read in Acts about preaching meetings. That is, the church was gathered to hear Paul preach. That's why they got together. It wasn't Sunday morning. They got together to hear someone speak. Or they had prayer meetings where all they did was they got together to pray. You see that when Peter's in prison. Churches gathered together to pray for Peter. You'll see celebrating the Lord's Supper. You see this in Corinthians. And that may or may not have been joined with a communal church-wide meal. Just to say that when you read the Scriptures, it's clear that there's a variety of kinds of meetings of the church. And all of us, any local expression of the body of Christ, tends to do this. We tend to take some elements and we mix them together, and that's what we've got in our main meeting of the week on Sunday morning. So there's not purity in that sense, any place. It's not that we're doing it just the way the Bible says. We're all combining elements that the Bible says are important for our Sunday morning meeting. Uh, if you go to a high church, uh, they'll follow a liturgy, uh, which just means an order of service. But the truth is all churches have at least informally, they have a liturgy because we all tend to do things a certain way. And so that's true of us as well. One of the first ways in which our Sunday morning tends to be a little different from most other churches is that we have the teaching first and not last. That is, after announcements, we look in the scriptures first, then we worship. Most churches would do this backwards or we do it backwards, depending on your perspective. Uh, this is intentional. This is something we'd actually talked about quite a bit when Lion and Lamb formed. And the reason that we teach first before we enter into what is specifically given to worshiping God, focusing directly on God and worship, is that we want the truth of the Scripture to inform our thoughts in worship. That's why we teach first. John 4.23 says, Jesus to the woman at the well in Samaria, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So it's not that we haven't read our Bibles during the week. It's not that we don't know some Scripture verses as we get together. <clears throat> but we teach first in the Sunday morning service so that the truth of the Scripture is informing us as we enter specifically that time with God in worship. We want to worship in truth. And since the Scriptures embody God's Word of truth, that's why we start with them. We want our worship to be informed by the truth. You know if you've been here any time at all that we place a premium on expository teaching. That is, we want our default, our bread and butter, as far as the teaching goes, to be out of the Scriptures. Um, related to being critical, um, you know, if you go to many churches, many groups today, uh, teaching out of the Scriptures is simply not the norm. We specifically teach out of the Scriptures because, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And the emphasis here is Scripture is inspired and profitable. My words are not inspired. They may or may not be profitable. Your words are not inspired. Somebody else, the, the author of a book or a seminar or whatever, their words are not inspired like the Scripture. We default that when we instruct each other, when we're talking about what's true and what applies to our life, we default to the Scriptures. That's where we're coming from because they are inspired. They are profitable. You know, uh, 
in the culture in which we live, there's lots of divergent voices that say what, va- what values, what's true, what's not true. And, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. You read in the, in the biblical account the same thing. So you could go to a church today and hear that the scriptures are not only not inspired, they're not from God, they're of human origin. They have no necessary value above anything else you'd read. I mean, that's a possibility in many churches today. That was true in Isaiah's day as well. In Isaiah 8, 19 and 20, God speaks and says, When they, Israel, says to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn or no light. In Isaiah's day, Israel has the law and the writings, but they're seeking truth content from the dead, spiritists and mediums. I mean, this is the same as our world today. No different at all. But God says through Isaiah, go back to the law and the testimony, because if the truth claims you're hearing, if they don't come from there, or if they don't agree with that context, there's no light in them. There's no... There's nothing from me. There's nothing about, of benefit or value to you. So go back to the truth content you were given. You see something similar in Jeremiah 6.16 in which God says, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Walk in it. You'll find rest for your souls. Again, the thought was there will be something new, some new source of truth, and I'll find that truth and my life will be blessed. Like losing weight or or uh, looking better, or making more money, you know, everybody's got a better way to live life. Well, in Jeremiah's day, God says, go back to what I already gave, because that's where peace for your soul is to be found. So, we're very intentional, one, about teaching first, because we want the truth of the Scripture to inform our worship, and we're getting our truth content specifically from the Bible itself. God's unchanging, His Word's unchanging, And humanity at that level, at that very basic level, is unchanging as well. So the truth applies equally today as it did in their day. The most unusual element of our Sunday morning meeting, as you know, is what we call open worship. Uh, How many outside of this church service have been in a church service that functions with an open worship venue? A few? Okay. Uh, It's not the norm is it? It's not uh, usual. And by that, if you're new this morning or hearing this for the first time, open worship or the open venue part of our worship time just means that there's a time for anyone in the church to spontaneously offer praise or thanksgiving to God. Biblically, this comes out of a meeting that the Corinthians had in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And the key verse or the culmination of these three chapters, Paul says, is when you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Just a little bit of background on this. The Corinthians, it would have been a really fun church to have visited because uh, it was full of life and at the same time full of confusion. And, And the deal was this. God had really very abundantly gifted, spiritually gifted the Corinthian church with miraculous gifts and with speaking gifts, all of which is good and and, and fine. The problem was these spiritual gifts were given to spiritually immature, spiritually carnal people. And so they weren't being used very well. 
so that in the public meeting of the church, people were talking over the top of each other. They were interrupting each other. Or they were speaking in a language no one else knew. And they individually felt encouraged, but no one else knew what was going on. And so that the fallout of this, <clears throat> this kind of undisciplined open worship venue in Corinth was chaos and confusion. So Paul doesn't say the gifts are a problem. Paul says the way this meeting is being held is problematic, and so we're going to bring in some, a, a better way of, of having this open worship venue. And so he put strictures on that meeting, and he said things like this. He limited the number of people who spoke. Uh, if a person spoke in a language they didn't know, there had to be an interpretation, so that if, they, if the message couldn't be interpreted so the whole church could understand what was being said, they weren't to speak. Or if someone stood up and said uh, something that was considered prophetic, that is, God was speaking directly, giving directions to the church or whatever, they were the church, the larger church, was to analyze that message and say, we think that's from God or, or we don't think that's from God. We, this is the way we'll implement this or, or not, whatever. But he did all these things to enable people to use the gifts they had but limit and control them so that that time was both honoring to God and it was encouraging to everyone else who was there. That was the goal. God was honored, and the church was encouraged, or in the language of the New American Standard, at least edified, built up. That was the goal. <clears throat> Kathy's and my early adventures as Christians when we got married were in churches that had an open worship. Some, some churches called it open mic. I'm not going to share any stories here, but I'll just tell you. On the high side, the open worship forum, it was great, it was encouraging, it was edifying, super. And, and on the other side, open worships were really nothing short of spectacularly disastrous. Uh, embarrassing, confusing, I mean, you name it. It was terrible. So we've seen the good, and we've seen the bad, and, and basically everything in between. But open venues, open forums are like dynamite. You know, dynamite was created to be constructive, you know, to help with uh, road building and dams, etc. But it can also be very destructive, and open worship is like that. For probably a number of reasons, not least of which is time, we have said at Lion and Lamb that we're going to put additional strictures on the open worship aspect of our worship time to do really just one thing. We're going to take that open venue, but we're going to say we just want that continued worship. That is, the focus is going to be to continue to be worship so that as you participate in open worship, make that a direct thanksgiving, a praise or worship to God. That's what we want to do at that time. That is not to say that all kinds of other things wouldn't be biblically not only permissible, but fine, encouraged for that time potentially. We've just said because of constraints, and frankly at one level to avoid as much confusion as possible, and so that the church is edified and that our focus remains on God Himself, we've said we still want to honor the concept of the church, the body of Christ, bringing as individuals to the meeting what they have to offer to God, but we want to put further strictures than Paul did just to say, we want this time to be continued to focus on God Himself in praise, thanksgiving, and worship. So that in our, our open venue, that's what we're saying. We're continuing to worship God. 
We're not exhorting the church. We're not sharing other stories. We've done some of this, as you know. Again, it doesn't mean anything that's wrong. We're just saying as a church, we want to make this our goal for time constraints as well as to avoid some confusion as well. Another aspect of this is worship, and worship of God is such a primary call that that's really what we, in the end, as far as our open venue, that's what we want to be our default position. We want to err, if you will, on the side of giving our time to worshiping God. Related to exhorting, sharing stories, prayer needs, admonitions, whatever, we do have other venues for that. The end of the Sunday school hour is one. Home groups, men's discipleship groups, ladies' conferences are others. Another one which we often overlook, when we meet in each other's homes, and I'm thinking after church Sunday lunches, I'm thinking Thursday night suppers, Anytime two or three Christians are gathered together, Matthew 18 says, Christ is present. You know, the church is just a plural number of Christians meeting together. Just to say that when we're gathered in each other's homes, we could do the same thing that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. We can each bring what we have to offer to each other and to God. That venue is available to us outside the Sunday morning time. We're trying to say through the inclusion of that open venue in our worship time, that we value this concept of individuals bringing what they have to Christ. I'll mention why in just a minute. Um, And at the same time, kind of reducing it down to what for us is the key element of that Sunday morning time, which is worship. But there's other venues available, Sunday school. And don't forget, I just say again, because lots of us meet in homes during the week, these are appropriate venues. These are... These are... uh, accessible venues to do these things, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to admonish each other, etc. The second element I want to focus on is our leadership model for the church, our form of governance. We are what's called an elder-run church, an elder-run church. Uh, We'll flesh this out here in just a second. There's other models for church leadership, senior pastor models, bishops, congregational, etc. You can probably think of some more. We're what's called an elder-run church. And by that I mean we believe God calls a plural number of men to corporately lead the church. A plural number of men to corporately lead the church. Let me tell you why, biblically. You may find arguments for other forms of church leadership, but what is very, very difficult to get away from is what was clearly the New Testament norm. And no matter how you look at this or where you look, the New Testament espouses a plural number of men as the model of leading for the church. I'll just rattle through a few verses for you. Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas returned to the churches that have grown up through their missionary journey. They appointed elders for them in every church. Acts 20, verse 17, Paul sends for the elders of Ephesus to come join him in Miletus, and he tells them this, Be on guard for yourselves. For all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church. The elders are are appointed by the Holy Spirit as those leaders in that church. Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, his protege, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Lastly, 1 Peter 5.1-3, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. There's others. If you want to look at the qualifications for elders, they're in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. 
So while there are numerous models for church leadership today, what you simply cannot get away from in the New Testament is that a plural number of men is the default position of leadership for the New Testament church. It's a given. It's what you'll see throughout. <clears throat> this is an aside, but I think it, uh, it's a rationale or it's a philosophical basis for this. <clears throat> The New Testament local church form of leadership, a plural number of men, harkens back. Remember that the early church was Jewish. It harkens back to the synagogue model of church leadership. Remember that in the Jewish culture, you had kind of two forms of religious life being expressed. One was central in Jerusalem at the temple. One was local at the synagogue in any town that had a quorum of ten men or more to form a synagogue. So there's sort of two levels and two realms of leadership, one central and national and the other is local. Well, when those Jewish evangelists went out and evangelized the Roman world, the model they set up for church leadership was like the synagogue, not like the temple. This is important. This is, theologically, I think, and philosophically this is important. It informs why. The synagogue model, plural number of men, not the temple model. And, and think of this, the temple model is you have to be part of the priestly line or you cannot fulfill this function of leadership. You have to be born in the priestly line. But also remember this, that before Jesus' death and resurrection, God says to man, there's, there's a problem you and I have, it's called sin, and so there's this chasm, as it were. There's this separation between us. And you need someone to come from you to me. You need to be represented. You need a mediator. And the priesthood was that form of mediation. So remember, in the temple, you didn't go to God. The priest went to God on your behalf. You brought your offering for sin, but the priest slayed it, and the priest offered it, and only the priest, the high priest, once a year went in before God's presence for the nation. What I'm getting at is this. A priesthood is a form of mediation that inherently states you cannot approach God. Are you with me on this? A priesthood means you cannot approach God. Do you see why this is important? Because Peter says, you as a believer are also what? A priest. And you remember at the death of Christ on the cross, what happens to the veil in the temple? It's torn. And the New Testament tells us what this means, that the way that, that hindered us to God before, it's now open. So that you read a book like Hebrews and it says, you may come boldly before the throne of grace. This was never said to Jews under the law. They needed a mediator. Christians individually are priests, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. We don't have a mediator anymore except Jesus Christ Himself in heaven for us today. So my argument is this. A church that uses a model of leadership that has a, lead, that has a leadership that's a mediator and is distinct from the rest of the church, I would argue they're operating under the wrong covenant. They belong in the old covenant, not in the new. Because the new covenant says you are all priests and there's nothing that prohibits any of you from direct access to God in your own worship or in praying to God on behalf of others as the priests under the Old Covenant did as well. So theologically, <clears throat> I find it problematic to 
to argue for a form of church leadership in which the leaders are somehow separate, sanctified from, separated from the rest of the church and have a mediator function that the rest of the church does not. Theologically, I think this is a, this is a border or a barrier you just can't get around. Having said that, we're committed to a plural number of men as elders in the church. Uh, we don't look like an elder-run church right now. Uh, there's one recognized elder, yours truly, at this point. I would just say we started actually when this church was formed with five elders, and that's whittled down over the years. We're committed to an elder form of church. And I think by two venues, I think by God growing and maturing men within our own midst, and by God, thankfully... By the way, when we started our church in 97, I prayed 11 years ago that God would bring more leaders to us. And over those years, God took leaders away. (laughs) And it's only, you know, I'm serious. It's like 11 years later that God's bringing leaders to us, which I'm thrilled. So I think both between God growing up, men within our own midst, and God also bringing in men who are already clearly gifted qualified and called as leaders in the church, I think God is returning us in appearance to an elder-run church as well. We can talk more about that later. The church does support me financially, that is, those who choose to designate a portion of their giving for my support, for my family's support, and it does allow me to take time off for my business so that I basically, even though we're not a large group, the administrative details are my responsibility, essentially, meeting with folks, discipleship, not all of it, certainly, but A key component of that is my responsibility, and most of the teaching remains my responsibility. So that support does allow me to fulfill those functions. Now, on a practical level, we meet as a leadership team. We try to monthly. Some months go by that we do not, but we try to meet monthly to talk about the business of the church. We have quarterly planning meetings in which we get together to plan out who's teaching, who's leading worship, etc. At the end of the day, there's no single individual who is head over the church, Christ is the head of the church. We try to co-labor together so that the church is built up the way God wants it to be. The third area I want to talk about is outlook on youth ministry. I can't tell you how many families uh, have said this to me, and I'll bet some have said it to you too. They visited Lion and Lamb, and they've gone away, and they've said, we love your church, but... We're going to go to a church with a, a, a standard youth ministry. We want youth ministry for our children. And Lionel Lamb really doesn't have that, not in the way most churches do. You know, for most churches, this is kind of a non-negotiable. You've got to have a youth ministry. It's not that we don't have any, and we'll close on what we are doing and, and do related to the young adults in our midst, but related to the model or what kind of guides our thinking along this line you will not find any place in the Bible in which the church is responsible for your children. Parents are responsible for their children. When you and I stand before Christ, as parents we will give an account for how we raised, trained, brought up our children. In saying this, I don't mean that the church has no role in your children growing up to be godly young men and women, but that it is a secondary supportive role. It is not the primary role. Kathy and I have talked to missionaries. I kid you not. These are people 
who can make a very good living in the United States, who, who have lived in third world countries to share the gospel of Christ with the unreached. And yet they've told us when they've come home, they hope they can find a church with a great youth group so their children can become Christians and can be discipled. I'm not, I'm, this is, I'm not stretching this a bit. Our jaws are dropping. We're like, what? And I hope this isn't true for you, but I can't tell you how many Christians it is true for. The thought is this as a Christian parent. I'm going to take my children to a church with a great youth ministry because that's where they're going to hear the gospel and that's where they're going to be trained up to be a godly young man or a godly young woman. If that's your mentality, you've, you've sold the farm. You've given, you've given it away. And that's not the biblical model. I won't belabor the point, but I don't care which testament you look in. You'll see that God commissions parents to disciple their children. And I use this word intentionally, disciple. You know, oftentimes you and I, if we think of parenting, we think we're going to raise our children. We raise our children, that is, we help them kind of physically grow up or we give them instruction. But parenting is nothing short of discipleship in which a teacher, that is the parent, is teaching their children how to become adults, how to think about life, how to be a Christian or not be a Christian, or anything else. In Luke's gospel, I want to say chapter 5, I could be wrong, there's a principle Jesus states, and it's this, that every student who's fully trained becomes like his teacher. Well, as a parent, you're a teacher, you're a discipler, and your children generally grow up to be like you. I should mention also, uh, who you spend time with also has a huge impact on the person you become. So for us today, where our children go to school, who their friends are, these have huge impacts on who they become, and I don't mean to belittle that at all. That's, uh, it's, it's another topic entirely. But as far as within the, the family of faith, the church can have a supportive role but it is, does not have the primary role for raising your children to be godly young men and women. You, you think of passages like Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. You know, God says the, the law of Moses has been given, and He says you shall teach them diligently to your sons, that is, parent to children, God's Word, when you talk with them, when you sit in your house, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Or Proverbs, in fact, think of this, Proverbs is a whole book, 31 chapters, written from a father to a son. The whole thing is about father helping Junior become a wise, godly person who knows how to live life wisely. And one of the key verses there, uh, chapter 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's to parents. That's to parents. Or go to Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So biblically, thinking of youth, young adults, would probably be my preferred uh, term, young adults, and who they're becoming and what they're becoming and taking their cues from primarily the responsibility of parents with the church having a secondary or supportive role. We've known families in the past that also have left the church they were in because either their children were straying from what they thought was uh, an appropriate path for them, or they didn't feel like their children were, were getting it as far as uh, the things of God and the, and the truth and were on their way in the right direction spiritually. And so they changed churches because the thinking was, 
we're going to put our children in a church that has a more vital or dynamic youth ministry, and that's where they'll be helped. Now, in none of the instances that I know of personally did that actually work out that way. It made no difference to the outcome on the children at all. So if you're a parent and you're thinking about the impact that the church has on your children, let me invite you to think backwards to the norm, and it's this. You find the church where you're encouraged and you're challenged, and you are encouraged to be all that you should be in Christ and stay there. And then as you're encouraged and as you're challenged, then you share that with your children. I think that's arguably the biblical pattern, not the other way around. Not the church that you think best fits your child, the church that best fits you. And then you pass on to your children what you get from that venue. We as a church want to call young adults up. We want to call young adults up. So, for instance, Sunday school, we only have children Sunday school up through sixth grade. And part of the thinking related to that is this. We want children, as soon as they're able to be part of the adult group, because we want them hearing adults, talking with adults, interacting with adults, because that's the world they're becoming a part of. They're not going to stay with their peers the rest of their life. And we don't want them to be, as far as we're able, peer-dependent here. We want to call them up. So as early as we think they can, we want them sitting in on the adult Sunday school class because we want to call them up, not to where they're at. We want to say this is the way you need to be thinking and heading and the direction you need to take. Similar with junior church. We don't have a junior church for similar reasons. We want the children to be part of the adult worship. We want them to hear the truth of the scriptures because we want them moving up. You know, it's like driving. We want them to aim high. That's what we want for our young adults. Having said all the things we don't do, somewhat, uh, we do some things. We have semi-regular meetings of young adults and parents for Bible study and for service work. These are good things. We've had movie clubs in the past. We've done a number of things. They just haven't been a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, youth ministry type of program. It's not that we don't do things, we do. But they're semi-regular. They're certainly not on a weekly level. We also, as a church, personally and financially support Young Life, which is a parachurch organization here in Topeka, whose goal is to evangelize and disciple kids in public high schools. And this is important. Um, Andy, what's Andy's last name? Thank you. Andy Vogel will probably be speaking with us in, I think it's going to be March. We still need to nail that down, but... It's not that we don't believe the church has a role to play. We just don't think related to discipleship, it's the primary one. We want to be invested as a church with our young adults in ways that are helpful and meaningful that call them up. And we also want to be wise about evangelism, which is primarily what Young Life does, and discipleship within the forum of those kids who are in a public school venue. The last and the one that we share most commonly with lots and lots of other churches, and I'll spend the least amount of time on, is corporate life and work, corporate life and work. If you do a quick study in the New Testament, if you type in one another, or if you use your concordance to look this up, just of the term one another, 56 occurrences in the New Testament, if you expand it to say each other, you'll find another group of verses. But just this, I'm just going to rattle through a number of these. The Scripture calls Christians to do a number of things with each other or for one another. So be devoted to one another, give preference to one another, accept one another, through love serve one another, 
Speak truth to each other. We're members of one another, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, encourage one another, build up one another, stimulate one another, etc., etc. You get the point. In other words, as a Christian, we are called into fellowship with other Christians where we fulfill these passages, where we do encourage one another and forgive each other, where we encourage each other to love and good deeds, the Hebrew passage says. You can't do that if you're not intentional. You know, in the States, we live a very bisected, dissected, diversified lifestyle typically. That is, we're pulled in all kinds of different directions. And there's a real downside to that. Because typically it means that you're not spending enough time with the same group of people to have significant impact on each other. Because you're just, you're shallow with everybody because you're spread out so many different directions. It requires intentionality and a a conscious effort to say, I'm hanging out, and I don't mean holy huddles, I don't mean avoiding the world, I don't think any of us here are guilty of that, but of spending enough a conscious time with each other that we're actually fulfilling this kind of lifestyle which Christians are called to. This is supposed to be the norm. You can't help each other, forgive each other, encourage each other if you're not spending time with each other. The church is called to have fellowship with each other. We are as members of each other because it's part of the significant way God forms and shapes us. I think probably most of us would do well, whether it's at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, to look again at our schedule and see where we're investing, who's investing in us and who are we investing in. And do we have the kind of time that's necessary to be encouraged by other Christians and likewise to encourage others? other Christians as well. If you're not intentional about it, I'd almost guarantee in our culture it does not, will not happen. And also the the call to good works. A couple weeks ago we talked briefly out of a passage in Titus 2.14 where Christians are to be characterized as those who are zealous for good works. That is one of the things we want to do. We don't want to just rub shoulders with each other. We don't want to just talk about Christianity and the things we have in common, but we want to do those things that God says are are honoring to Him and are helpful to each other. We want to share the gospel with others. We want to encourage each other in meaningful ways of sharing the gospel with those around us. We also as a church support for and pray for regularly the missionaries we support in third world countries. We want to be intentional about the work of the gospel, literally sharing the message of hope in Christ with others. We want to be intentional about discipleship as a work, as something we work at. That is helping younger Christians or older Christians, whatever stage of life we're at, continue to grow to be more and more like Christ. And that happens in, to some degree, the Sunday morning meeting, but also in the Sunday school hour, men's discipleship meetings, home groups. I'm trying to think of the other groups we've had in the past. Anyway, all the venues in which we get together should be helpful in this work of discipleship where we're helping each other become the people in Christ God means us to be. And also simply meeting the needs physically of those in our midst and to the degree that we're able, those outside in the larger world around us. You know, if you look at either uh, Old or New Testament, God places a premium on being helpful to others. If you read the prophets, you'll see typically about half the charges at least, God levels against the nation of Israel when He does, are social issues. That is, they are issues related to the way Jews treated Jews. The way we treat each other is very, very important to God. It's kind of the proof of the pudding and the claims we make. It's the way we treat each other. So we have public service works 
And by, by the way, I would say if, if you are a person in need or you know of other people in the church, let me start there, who have physical or financial needs, we would like to know because the church would help out in the ways the church is able. We've, we've trenched yards. We've given checks. We've done cleanup projects. Uh, we've helped each other with walls and you name it. That's what the church is called to do. We are also committed to doing what we can in the community around us, which is one of the reasons that the church, part of our budget, is giving to the rescue mission every month. We're supporting part of the body of Christ embodied in the rescue mission in North Topeka and meeting the needs of those who have real physical needs. There have been work projects there as well. So we want to be giving feet to the notion that we're also called to impact each other in the felt needs that we have within the body and also that the world around us has as well. That those are functions that we as a church should be meeting, that should be part of our priority. This just scratches the surface, but I hope it gives a little bit of clarity or fills out a little bit or is a good reminder about who we are and where we're going. And we told our girls as they were growing up, um, <clears throat> we knew that each one of them had strengths And we wanted each one of them, we wanted to help each one of them to maximize their strengths. And we knew that they each had weaknesses. And we wanted to help each of them minimize their weaknesses. And that's my view for us as a church as well. We have strengths as a church that we want to maximize. We have weaknesses as a church that we want to minimize. But if we have a pretty good concept of how God's put us together, the strengths He's given us, and the weaknesses that we have, That makes pretty good sense in saying these are probably the ways, the avenues and the venues that we can most fully carry out the unique call God has for Lion and Lamb to make an impact on the world around us. It's having an objective sense of how God's put us together so that we can most fully be the local church, the local body of Christ He's called us to be, to honor Him in worship and then to work that out in evangelism and discipleship and good works in the world around us. So... Again, this, I'm, it raises issues. There's all kinds of issues that just even topically talking about these things raise. If you have questions, I'd be glad to interact with you later, email or whatever. But we want to maximize our strengths, minimize our weaknesses, and as far as we're able, fulfill the unique call and commission God has on us as a local expression of His body. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you oversee your own works and counsel to bring about the things that matter to you. And Lord, you're at work in the world today by your Holy Spirit through people just like us, through your church. Father, help us to have a high view on the church, to place uh, the value you place on the church and the way you want to honor yourself in the church and work in the world today through us. Father, thanks that we share common bonds with every other believer on the world today. Whatever separates us, Lord, we have more in common than we have apart. Help us to recognize those things and value them. Father, you've also made each of us individually and each local expression of your church unique also. Unique strengths, unique weaknesses. Help us to fully become as much as we're able. The people you call us to be the church you call us to be so that we can join our, vo- our voices in praising you and fulfill the good works you've called us to. 
In Jesus' name, amen.